Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. I was going to let it play longer because <laughs> I'm having technical problems here at home. I thought, you know, I can just let the you know, DJs used to do this all the time. So the like, songs that were really long, like MacArthur Park and Inagata Davida and stuff, like I'm talking about in the 60s, uh, they would just play, <laughs> play these long songs so they could go to the bathroom or fix something or you know, had other duties to do rather than just being a DJ anyway, catch some satellite feed or whatever. They probably didn't have satellite feeds then. Anyway, this is not what you, this is not your beautiful life. This is not what you tuned in for. So what we're going to do today is we are going to do all calls. And I say that with another nervous chuckle. Because <laughs> I'm just looking at my computer right now and it's being very funny. Um, but we're going to do all calls and we are going to hope for the best. Uh, and what I would uh, advise you to do. Oh, my Lord, look at this. Uh, what a mess. What I would advise you to do once I figure out what's wrong with this, this thing. Okay, I think I'm, no, that's not it either. Um, once I figure out what's going on with the calls, what I would advise you to do is call a little on the early side, just because, you know, what people typically do uh, is that they call at like 155 and they go, I, I called before too, you didn't take me. So, like, so that's a problem. Uh, we don't really want to do that. Um, and so one of the, some of the stuff that I would be interested or willing to, you know, hear about from you is kind of how you found out about, if, assuming that you do think that you have found out that uh, Joe Biden is the president-elect and the 46th president of the United States, therefore to be, um, you know, what that was like. I mean, in a way, we sort of heard a lot of that kind of stuff over the last couple of days, but it's still, I think for a lot of us, kind of a strange little miracle. Uh, you know, a little thing that, that, you know, you, I, I, you know, I, I can't pretend to be impartial on this show. I, um, this is something that I had certainly hoped would happen for a really long time. And I'm very happy that it did. Okay. I think I just fixed that thing while I was talking. That's so good. Um, all right. So now I can give you the phone number and there's a good chance that you will be able to reach me. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. And yeah, we opened with the birds and turn, turn, turn. Not so I could fix my computer, but because in fact, in one of his several speeches in between the closing of the votes on Tuesday uh, and uh, his final speech on 
on Saturday night, um, Joe Biden did invoke Ecclesiastes, uh, on which that song also is based. Um, and yeah, the, there's that notion of a time to heal. Although I guess one of the things I'm really interested to hear about from you is whether you think on either side it is genuinely a time to heal. You know, in other words, do you feel as though, let's just assume for a moment that I'm talking to a Biden voter or this being public radio, maybe even somebody who, um, you know, voted for Biden reluctantly, hoping instead for an Elizabeth Warren kind of candidate, that kind of thing. Um, are you able to heal? Are you able to care one way or another about the Trump voter? Uh, and I understand that when Trump won in 2016, there are really probably wasn't a lot of conversation going on among Trump voters of like, how can we reach out to and mend fences with Clinton voters? But still, um, you know, do you have that anywhere in your uh, in your psychological makeup? And then, you know, I mean, the, the other question is so the dissatisfied Trump voter, you know, where is that going to lead us? I, I will be honest with you and hopefully not be sowing the seeds for anything, but I have genuine concerns about the safety of everybody, particularly the two people at the top of the Democratic ticket. I mean, there's just a thing unleashed right now that is not new. It is not new to the American psyche. Uh, if you read, you know, Joanne Freeman or I'm talking about a historian, Yale historian Joanne Freeman. If you read Richard Hofstadter, you see that there is this long long connection between politics and violence uh, in, in this country. Uh, Trump didn't invent it, not even close. Uh, and that violence has often intruded uh, into our political space. Uh, I am very, very hopeful that that does not happen. But I cannot necessarily guarantee you that that it won't. I mean, there are obviously are people who feel empowered and, and also kind of validated. And some of those people are just crazy, you know, and some of them are just angry. Uh, but I, I do worry about that. And so far, you know, it hasn't been too bad. And I, I think that's just an answered prayer. But, um, you know, as we go along here, anyway, I, I hope very much that you know, there won't be really, really regrettable and shocking uh, outbreaks because there's a lot of very unhappy Trump voters out there and he has conditioned them. He has given them good reason, I think it's fair to say, to believe that the election has been stolen, is being stolen. Um, if you believe things that he says, then you believe that. Uh, so yeah, that's a big worry along with lots of other things to worry about. So uh, on that note, okay, it just disappeared again. Here it is, it's back. Uh, let me, I'm gonna try to put a call on the here. Uh, and I hope I'm saying this name right. I'm just saying, Niha, am I saying your name right? Um, yes, you are. Oh, how about that? Well, you're on the you air. Got it. You're on the air. So, you know, you were talking about where I was when I found out. Um, and it was, it was on Saturday. It was actually my birthday. Hmm. And it was the best possible birthday gift in the world. Um, but then you, you know, you also talked about people feeling validated and empowered, as I am, and I think with that empowerment, a sense of having the power to empathize, and actually having the power to tap into our values, which I think was taken away from us to some extent over the past four years, and so I think that's our work now. I think that's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, I mean, I, I really do. First of all, happy birthday. But second of all, yeah, I, I think, you know, 
that work and it's going to take a lot of work you know but obviously the the guy who's about to be in charge is doing a really good job setting a tone uh and is being as conciliatory as somebody who has been through a very rough and tumble campaign could possibly be asked or expected to be so so yeah i mean you know ultimately we have to share this country 75 million biden voters 70 million trump voters i'm you know, this is an estimate we don't really know yet, but however, 70, let's say 75 million Biden voters, 70 million Trump voters, you know, and we're not going to partition the country at the Continental Divide or something. There's just, we have to find some way to live in this country together. Uh, and uh, I've been saying that kind of thing for a really long time. Only recently have I realized that I have no idea how that will be accomplished, but maybe somebody will. Hey, before we, um, <laughs> meanwhile, I'm getting like spam calls here. Oh, what a day. What a day here in the Colin McEnroe studios. So um, before we go too much further into the, into the calls, and so calls are queuing up here, and we're going to get to you, uh, John and Bruce and Sonia. Um, uh, just a few things just to sort of call your attention to. Um, I think we have uh, a new Secretary of Defense like a few minutes ago. You also probably know that Ben Carson has tested positive uh, for COVID-19. Um We've got obviously also unrelated to politics, uh, I think, but maybe related related to rationality and the Enlightenment. Uh, Alex Trebek has left us at the age of 80 over the weekend. Uh, even as people got really excited about the Biden win, you could also feel when that news broke, the air going out of people. There's a, just a guy who just won a lot of people over, over a really long period of time. And a guy who also, you know, he's 80 years old, he's got pancreatic cancer, and he just hung in there. I think he got all of his shows taped to the end of the season or something. I mean, just working really, you know, about as close up to the end as you could possibly work. So that's a very interesting uh, form of, of dedication. Meanwhile, Pfizer uh, has a coronavirus vaccine that it says is 90% effective in the first analysis. That may or may not be um, rock solid. I just saw as we were getting to go on the air that Vox has dropped, dropped an explainer about what we really know and what we don't know. However, it's better news than, you know, it's better news than worse news would be, uh, to say something irrefutable. Uh, I mean, that's nothing to, you know, uh, that's nothing to ignore anyway, a, a, a vaccine at least claiming 90% effectiveness. And uh, if you're wondering whether the markets ignored it, no. In fact, uh, as, as I was sort of getting ready for the show, the markets between the certainty of the presidential uh, certification and, and the Pfizer uh, vaccine, the markets were soaring. It is possible that the S&P will set a record today. If that happens, if the S&P sets a record, you know, on the day after the weekend where Biden uh, was uh, acclaimed and called uh, as president-elect, Donald Trump is going to have to go on high flow oxygen again. I mean, he's going to need that kind of help. He is going to lose it. Um, but anyway, uh, so we have a lot of things to talk about here today. We're going to mainly talk about where we are uh, in the world of the election, uh, where we are in the complicated process of creating a transition process where the typical one does not exist. So there's, you know, a long history uh, of really good, really smooth, well-executed transitions. Um, w, in particular, his team kind of famously put together a great transition process for Obama. Obama was uh, profoundly grateful for it and mentioned it many times and then told his staff 
I'm getting a lot of this from a really good Mike Pesca interview with Benjamin Wittes, but then told his staff, we're going to do the same thing, no matter who comes in. Then it was Trump. They gave him, you know, every kind of briefing stuff in the world. And there was apparently ample evidence that just none of it really got used in any particular way. But it's also clear that there won't be anything like that. In fact, the person within the GSA who has to start the transition process, which is something you'd probably start now, even if you thought, well, maybe, you know, there's still some possibility of things working their way through court. That person, who I believe is named Sarah Murphy, is refusing to kind of start this pretty complicated transition process uh, running. Now, the fact that Joe Biden has served in the Senate that long and as vice president for so long, it's not like... You know, he's some guy, you know, in a Boy Scout kerchief or something. He's just not going to know anything. I mean, he may need less briefing than many people coming in. But on the other hand, one of the things that does distinguish us is having a good transition process. It seems unlikely that we will have one this time. All right. Babbled long enough. we got callers here. Let's go to some of those callers. I'm just going to go right down the row uh, here without uh, fear or favor. Here's uh, Peter in Stanford. Hi, Peter. Uh, yes, I just want to uh, make a request uh, that uh, you have more call-in shows like this, because I know you have a lot of non-call-in shows, but it's great to have more call-in shows. Uh, and uh, also, I'm just grateful that uh, we have a normal president with, uh, that is going to respect the norms. I always uh, even said, uh, you know, that even as heretical as maybe even Mike Pence is a normal compared to Trump, even though hopefully he's not infected by the, by the MAGA virus. But, uh, you know, I'm just glad, you know, but I'm going to be worried about the next 73 days, what he's going to, what, what Trump's going to do. But, but hopefully we'll return to normalcy in some way, shape or form. Yeah, you know, and I, I do think that every time something normal happens, Peter, for example, today, Biden came out, and I think he announced the members of the COVID task force, you know, he, and he comes out and he's normal and he does kind of what president-elects might be expected to do, and he doesn't say anything super weird. And I do think that these kind of adult performances uh, gradually are kind of letting some of the tension uh, out of this country. Um, obviously, there are some people who, there's maybe 70 million people who, who don't welcome that, but the people who do, uh, I agree with you that when you see that, when you see a grown-up responding to grown-up responsibilities in a grown-up way, uh, after all these four years, uh, there is a you know sense of relief that wishes through us. And I take your point about call-in shows too. We got a little, we got away from that, and uh, we'll get back to them. All right. At NPR, WNPR is changing its for- format uh, somewhat more into the. Uh, long podcast format, which is which is great because uh, you like to have people with expertise too. When you have a long interview like that, I like that too. Okay, um, that's good. But, I didn't even know we were changing. Uh, our format. But, well, no, no, no. I'm saying no. I, you didn't really. I didn't <laughs> change the format. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm saying that you've gotten away from the the talking sh- talk yeah. shows in a little bit, and you've gotten a lot more into the. And I like the deep dives too. You know, yeah. where you just have on a, a guest and 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 you know just go with that too. Um, I was told but this I'm is going to be an all-polka show, but I, they said that I had three weeks. Yeah, there so, you go. There you um, go. Well, just, Peter, thanks for your call here. we got a lot of people uh, here who want to get going. Uh, here's John in Collinsville. Hi, John. How goes, Colin? Oh, just fine. Uh, what's on your mind? Uh, well, uh, two things. Uh, one was uh, driving home last night. I work in Collinsville, but I live in Winstead, and I was driving by the tiny town green, uh, in Winstead, and it was dark. It was probably 6 p.m. And uh, and I thought, my God, what's going on there? Because dimly visible in the darkness 
was what was left. It was the ghost of a Trump rally. There they were, maybe 10 or 12 people standing huddled in the darkness with the barely visible Trump pence signs and one man with a lantern on a stick. And it was just like, okay, it's the ghost of the Trump rally. Actually, just I hate to interrupt, John, but that is actually direct, uh, Winstead's director of utilities, the guy with the lantern on a stick. So he's there a lot of the time. Uh, but anyway, continue. Oh, okay. Well, in any event, so that was a, a, a fascinating image. I mean, on the one hand, it gave me hope that maybe maybe this is actually over. But the thing I keep worrying about, and I'm sure you've mentioned this before, is the concept of the faithless elector. Right. And I was just wondering if you if you had some thoughts on that issue. It's something that I continually think is the long term plan here for them hanging on to power. Right. Well, the only way you could do it. So a faithless elector, for people who don't uh, know that term, is an elector who does not vote the way the certification of the state's results have gone. Um, so and, and in fact, uh, it is I haven't looked at the law for, of this in this cycle, but I don't think there's any way you can stop them from doing that. But um, the thing about it is the only way that that could work. I mean, it works better, you know, if you need to flip I don't know, seven electoral votes or something, you know, then maybe you could sort of think about that or talk about that. But um, for the most part, you know, if you win by a substantial margin, and we don't know what the margin is yet, but for example, starting to look like, I think, what is Biden up by 10,000, 11,000 votes in Georgia right now? I mean, it looks like, you know, a number of these states are going to fall into place that way. So you need a lot of faithless electors at that point. And the only way you can really do it is to get whoever is doing the certification, it's usually the state legislature, like you go to the state legislature of Pennsylvania and say, we want you to seat a bunch of electors, this bunch of electors and or something, but I, you know, and force them to take electors who are not democratic electors, or I, I don't know how you do that. So, I mean, it, it, that's how you would have to do it though, right? You'd need a bigger number. You can't just have a guy here and a woman there. Uh, you need- but, that's, but that's the concern, you know, that, that somehow this has been the plan all along. This is me being paranoid. But, you know, why, why go for this uh, demonization of, of mail balloting? Why go for these legal challenges, which so far have amounted to nothing, I grant you. But if they can drag out some of these challenges long enough that they go past the certification deadlines, that that clearly is the long-term strategy here, and then you know what? I, what's the date? December sixth, I think, is is well, when all these uh, have to be decided. I think the f- December fourteenth is the. Uh, don't hold me to that, but I thought that that was the final date of um, uh, of seating oh. this day of seating the electors. So, well, yeah, look. Another way to think about this, though, I'm just trying to put your mind at ease here. First of all, what we're seeing basically is that although very few Republicans are willing to kind of go the Mitt Romney route or, you know, like congratulate Biden or something like that, behind the scenes, it's pretty clear that A, the Republican leadership, they know now that they don't need Trump anymore and he's probably not going to be any use to them and they 
to a certain degree appear at least to believe uh, in uh, in a very flimsy but I think indelible way in some of these institutions. And so the question would be, would anybody besides a member of the Trump family and Rudy Giuliani and a few other zealots be willing to participate in such uh, an institutionally destructive process? And my guess is you're just not going to see that, that however these things wind up uh, getting decided, you're going to see electors who correspond to that decision. So I don't know. I mean, there's so much to worry about right now. I mean, you know, what Axios has been reporting all day is that pretty much everybody in the White House knows that Trump has lost and, and accepts that Trump has lost. The question is, how do you broach this subject with him? How do you get him to, to know all that? And the other thing that I would say in terms of the court process dragging out, the judges know when the electors are seated. They know when they have to get this decided. And and I, the, the maybe the final thing, these may not be smart things that I'm saying because I haven't really thought too much about this until you called, but you know, he's behind in most places. So, so if the process drags out uh, past the elector certification date or the elector seating date, uh, he's behind. Uh, so it's kind of hard to see how that helps him to drag things out. So what I would say is you got enough stuff to worry about. Don't worry about faithless electors. I, it just, you know, if it were a thing that could happen, and I'm not saying that it never happens because it does. I think there was a faithless elector in the 2016 election. Um, but it, it's some, not something that happens on such a widespread basis. It's like all of these other things, all of these challenges. Yes, you can get a recount and you can you can find, you know, three, four or five hundred votes statewide that are miscast or misqualified or whatever. You can't erase, you know, multi-thousand votes margins with recalls, not with recounts, not with any recount that I've ever seen anyway. Um, you know, what he's asking and his own people are telling him this and the, you know, the people in the Republican Party who typically like people like Ben Ginsburg, people who typically be the lawyers who led an effort like that, they're all saying the same thing. You, we can't get you that. I mean, we can't get you the kind of turnaround you're looking for from a recount. Um, all right. So let's go back up. to. Oh, no, actually, these people have been waiting a long time. They they deserve they deserve to get on here. Uh, here's uh, Sonia. Hi, Sonia. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Hi, how are you? Just fine. Good. So I uh, called in. I've never called in before. I'm calling in because um, of the question that you asked about how did I get my news about the uh, results of the election. Mm -hmm. And I had the unusual experience of basically hearing it from abroad, very far abroad. I was not watching the telly. I was not... Uh, on the radio, um, uh, and suddenly my phone started to explode with um, text messages and Facebook uh, notifications from friends and family in the UK. I had uh, contact from Wales and England and cousins in Scotland and friends in Northern Ireland, and uh, interestingly, also from Uganda from South Sudan, from Lebanon. Um, very interesting. My uh, family and friends in the UK were very excited about the Biden win. My friends from South Sudan were very annoyed. They're strong Trump supporters. And, and where are they from uh, again? Uh, you crackled out a little bit. Where are these people from? I'm sorry. Uh, from uh, South Sudan, which has just yeah. been in the middle of its own civil war for so yeah. long. 
uh, it's hard to be resentful of people who are living in South Sudan just because they're Trump supporters. Well, I think the point that you're making is a really a good one and an interesting one. I saw somebody tweet something to the effect that uh, you should try to live your life in such a way that when you lose your job, there are not people dancing in the streets all over the world. So the international response was swift. Um, uh, it ranged from almost immediately uh, the mayor of Paris uh, tweeting, welcome back, America, uh, to the incredible closing that was done for the evening newscast of RTE, one of the uh, Irish television networks, where they closed with uh, Biden uh, reading a Seamus Haney poem, the Hope and History poem, um, while there was this kind of montage of scenes from 2020 in America in the background. And it was very moving. Uh, but yeah, the whole world has been watching. And uh, most of the world, uh, most of the world, Putin is, by the way, still refusing. He's still, he's not going to congratulate Biden. He's not going to, blah, 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 you know. But yeah, so, I mean, most of the world, except the dictators who really liked Trump, uh, most of the world is reassured and is feeling as though uh, a little bit of the tension has gone out of all of our problems as a planet. Uh, here's a Bruce uh, in, uh, in East Haddam. Hi, Bruce. Hey, thanks for taking my call. No problem. Um, so, you know, my my, my thoughts are I'm a Democrat, pretty pretty hardcore left, I would say, grew up overseas. And, and you know, all the talk we have now, I think the first thing we'll do is, is as soon as possible, just get Trump out of the limelight because that's just going to continue the problems that we have. But more than anything, I think it's time for, for the people that, that voted for Biden um, all of us that sit there with bumper stickers about empathy and care and inclusiveness, it's time for us to realize that it, it, is, it, it, it behooves us to embrace the other side and get people to feel that they, you know, yeah, they've been sitting there listening to four years to a person that they thought they really liked, they're vested in this person. Um, we need to, as you said earlier, be the adult in the room and say, okay, you know, how do we have that empathy? How do we put ourselves in their shoes and, and move forward to unify us? Because right now, even on, on the good side, the Democrats, the winning side, I hear a lot of spite, a lot yeah. of let's take names, let's punish everybody. I, I tell you, all that is is feeding right into the Trump division right. and, and hate, and it's, it's nowhere forward. And we need to actually, you know, Put our money where our mouth is, because it's the lack of that money where our mouth is that has gotten to us to the point where the Democrats have, you know, lost sight. I, I would agree. Bruce, I'm just right? going to break in because we have to go to a break here pretty quickly. And I did want to say one or two things about your comment. You're a very good comment. Um, one of them is, here's the compromise I'm proposing. Everybody who voted for Biden can pick somewhere between three to five people that they never have to forgive. All right. You can designate. You can make a list. You should put it up somewhere where everybody can see it. Uh, transparency is good. So these three to five people, I am never going to forgive these three to five people. Like, you know, for me, I like Joe Scarborough is going to be one of them. Probably Probably both of them, you know, I, they might be the only people I never forgive. But I mean, you, it seems to me you should be <laughs> allowed to have some little group of people who you just never have to forgive. But then after that, yeah, you know, it does make sense on a much more generalized level uh, to see if we can patch what up whatever we can patch up without compromising totally on our principles. 
But I would also like to seriously break apart from that the question of will there be an accounting? Will there be, in other words, in 2008, as Obama won and as he came in in 2009, he had made the decision that there wouldn't be trials for war crimes or violations of the Constitution, holding people without charges in cells with no names on them, that kind of stuff, torture, all that stuff. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, and he just didn't think it was going to be any good. And a lot of very smart people would say that that was a really good decision. I just listened to a terrific interview with Jack Goldsmith, a legal theorist and former Bush staffer who you know, was sort of talking about why that was uh, a really good idea to do things that way. Um, you know, there's another group of people uh, who would say, no, if we don't put some of the people that we feel violated their the work of their office, the oath of their office, uh, people who engaged in illegal activities while in office, we, we'd never get any clarity, you know, and we never create any system of boundaries against doing that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure which camp I fall into right now. Actually, I just kind of see the appeal of each one. Although with each passing day, I think, you know what, just take the win, walk away. What would be accomplished really by putting Donald Trump on trial, right? You know, at the end of his presidency. I mean, look, the Southern District of New York, they're going to make their own kind of decision. But I'm talking about, you know, federal congressional investigations, that kind of stuff. I just don't, I don't see that a real upside to that. But, you know, but uh, reasonable people may differ about that one. Okay, so what we're going to do now is take a somewhat overdue break. Uh, and then we're going to come back with more of your calls. I will give out the phone number, except I don't have it in front of me right now, and I didn't memorize it. But it's 860-275-7266 if you want to get online. Now we must face it. You give me a pain. How can I miss you when you won't go away? Keep telling you day after day. But you won't listen. Oh, I thought there was going to be music. Um, all right. So um, with that in mind, this is Colin McEnroe. We're taking your phone calls today. Uh, and we are uh, talking, obviously, about the aftermath of the election and everything that goes along with it. The number is 860-275-7266. Uh, the previous caller oh, was talking about kind of uh, how... How we get past the acrimony of the moment. Uh, Kat, let's uh, give them a little bit of John Oliver. That's a clip 01 from last week tonight, which was, I think, last night. This was clearly a very long, very tense week, although thankfully it all felt worth it due to how it ended. CNN projects Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States, winning the White House and denying President Trump a second term. Yeah, that definitely happened. Trump isn't going to be president anymore. As we are taping this on Saturday, people across America are still taking to the streets to celebrate. person screaming Donald Trump from the back of a moving scooter actually sums up pretty nicely how a lot of people feel right now. And I've got to tell you, it was like that all day here in New York. 
There was a mood here that can only be described as a reverse 9-11. Why? Because it combined complete euphoria and abiding disgust for Rudy Giuliani. And this time, people were actually dancing on the rooftops in New Jersey. It was a really good day. Never forget. All right. So that's John Oliver. Uh, we're back um, and we do welcome your phone calls. If you try to get on before and we didn't get to you, we're scrambling around doing all kinds of tech stuff here. 860-275-7266. You get a chance to talk to Jonathan McPants himself. 860-275-7266. Happy to take your calls. Uh, no guests scheduled today, just uh, you folks. And so let's talk to Luz uh, in Shelton. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you? Just fine. Okay, um, your show is great. Um, my daughter and I have been listening to your show since uh, I came into this country in 69. So we are hot-headed um, uh, NPR listeners. Um, are you question about uh, how, where were you when uh, you first heard the, um, that Biden had won? Um, it was very interesting because um, I didn't think about myself when you posted a question. I thought about my niece, who's 16 years old, and yesterday was her uh, confirmation. And um, she uh, was talking about a lot of different things, and I asked her. I said, so I just wanted to know her view of the whole thing, being, you know, a young person. And uh, I asked her, where were you when you first heard about it? Oh, she was so excited. Right away, she, her eyes lit up, and she said, oh, I was in my dance class, and when we all heard about it, we stopped dance, the, the, the class, and we hugged each other, and we started screaming, and some of the girls were crying. And we were very, very happy. But uh, there was only one girl that was not part of the group, and she's a Trump uh, lover. And so it, it, it shocked me a little bit because I wasn't expecting her to be so aware of what was going on and aware of the other girl. And it made me think of um, the young people that are coming up and uh, uh, we need to address them because it's like... Uh, when all of us were at certain points in our lives and experienced something that was traumatically changing our lives. And for me, uh, for her, I saw that as a very, very important thing and that there's a lot of kids younger now that are so aware of what's going on and we need to address that to help them integrate with their own peers that are right. in the same and, and Luz, I also want to say thanks for that call and that story. I mean, apropos of that girl in the class, too. You know, I mean, there are a lot of situations like that, particularly in a place like Connecticut. And, for example, when I teach, uh, teach at the college level, you know, teaching at a liberal arts college, they, that's not what liberal arts means, but there really are nonetheless. Uh, there's a lean, you know. And one of the things that I say at the beginning of any semester is, if there are Republicans in the class, if there are Trump supporters and whatever, we will cherish them. We we will not only accept them, we will not only be polite and listen to what they have to say, because this is a seminar and that's what's supposed to happen in seminars. We'll actually be really glad we have them because we'll learn so much more. 
because we will have other voices and other ideas in this room. It's not going to be this monochromatic choir. And obviously, a dance class is not the same, but I hope there was at least some sense that it's it's just fine for one person in the dance class to be a Trump supporter and to be, you know, in her own way, sad uh, about the outcome. I mean, I don't know. I heard this really interesting uh, uh, episode by The Daily, the New York Times podcast this morning, and, and they talked in particular to one Trump voter and you know, she didn't sound like a crazy person. Um, and she was in a lot of pain for a lot of reasons that were very specific to her own life. And I thought, you know, we, we've got to be able to hear that voice somehow without necessarily validating what undergirds those perceptions. we got to at least hear the voice. Um, all right. So uh, since he's building on something that got said in the previous segment, let's try to get to Marty pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Marty in Middletown, you have the floor. Oh, hi. Uh, uh, I've never called in before, so probably will be a little uh, disjointed and nervous. But uh, on your comment of uh, letting Trump go and uh, he's gone, but the problem with that that I see is, and I, I agree with you uh, to a large degree, but, you know, here's a guy who always gets away. So what are we saying to the next president? Oh, do what you want to do, because you're going to get off the hook anyway. Uh, and, and punishment is the price you pay for doing something wrong. Now, I steal my neighbor's lawnmower or something less than that. And uh, you just say, oh, that wasn't that bad. Just let him go. What am I going to do? I'm going to steal my other neighbor's lawnmower. So that's my only comment. Marty, how many lawnmowers do you have now? Like, how many uh, have you stolen? I've got two. You've got two. Okay. Uh, I just was wondering how big a problem this had become for you. But uh, it sounds like you're, you're getting it under control. So, you know, let me just say this. First of all, I don't, uh, as I said before, I vacillate quite a bit on this particular thing. To me, it seems more ideal if conventional criminal prosecutions done through the Justice Department, through, the, you know, there's plenty of them that are under right now, uh, if those things are the means by which this is adjudicated. I think bringing it into Washington, D.C., bringing it in sort of Benghazi investigation style uh, into congressional chambers causes more trouble than it fixes. But to Marty's very valuable question about, you know, what prevents the next person, blah, 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 I think and this is sort of a Jack Goldsmith thing, too, and maybe a Ben Wittes thing. I can't remember who was saying it. But you got to start building a set of rules, actual rules that don't exist now, so that is that react, in fact, to what we've just been through. For example, it ought to be a law that a sitting president cannot pursue business interests. He has to get out of all of his business it's in a very genuine way, too. Uh, he, he's got to divest. He can't be actively running a business or, or own a business that is actively being run. I, I think it makes more sense to make the rules that should have existed and should have governed a lot of this situation. Uh, it makes more sense in terms of what we want to want from a future outcome to have bipartisan agreement about the way things should be, uh, particularly as contrasted to the way things have been for the past four years and make those rules and set it up so that we get better results. I'm not sure that we get better results with show trials. And I know they're not just show trials, but I think people kind of want them that way. And there's part of me that wants them that way too. But I don't necessarily uh, think 
that that's going to get us to where we need to go. And in a way, it's going to force a lot of Trump supporters into a more extreme corner of resentment. So I don't know. I, I know that I'm going to get chewed out by people that I know personally for, for at least lean, even leaning in that direction. There are a lot of people who really feel like we can't have a system that works unless we punish people who, you know, really aggressively break the rules. Uh, all right. Here's Molly in Collinsville. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Hi. So I am, I live in Collinsville. It's an absolutely gorgeous, lovely place. And I just consider myself a person of real privilege in almost all ways. And I just am thinking that, and it's just kind of funny because I know from people in AA that one of the things they say to people in the rooms when they feel sorry for themselves or blame other people is that when you point the finger at somebody else, there's three pointing back at you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think that that's always applies to me when I try to complain or find fault with other people is there's always ways that I can improve. And one of them is having compassion for people that are pissed off and freaked out and however they feel at this time and not rubbing salt in the room and just um, doing what Michelle said, taking the higher road. I mean, this is a chance. And I believe in, I didn't really, probably Biden was one of the people I liked least that ran. Now I see the, the perfection in his empathy, you know, in his, I really believe he has a good heart. And that's like so opposite of what we've had for the last four years. We have a person with a good heart. So. Yeah. I think that's true. I think, you know, I mean, within the world of politics, the world that Joe Biden has inhabited for all of these decades now, I think Republicans and Democrats alike would will say the same thing. Don't always agree with him. Don't always like everything that pops out of his mouth. But there's just no question that this is a decent human being, a fully decent human being. I think you'd have to look long and hard in the Republican uh, armies of Congress uh, to find somebody who had dealt directly with Biden and who didn't feel that way. And I think it's basically the way that Mitch McConnell feels, um, whether that alters Mitch McConnell's behavior one iota is a, of course, a separate but very active question. All right. Well, let's take a little break here as we go into this. Yeah. So we were, we were like fussing as we do about music. And um, I, I thought about uh, the um, the Bernstein musical, uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And there's kind of a famous song. It was a real flop on Broadway, the, the musical itself. But the one song that really has kind of come along that has stayed kind of famous is a song called Take Care of This House. The house is the White House. Uh, so let's go out with that.
Because the people are supposed to know better Standing around like furniture There's a war between you What you want, you got to leave it Tonight you got the power to take it Tomorrow you won't have the power to keep it West of the Jordan East of the Black Put your hand on my head, baby. Do I have a temperature? Uh, I'm not even a big Bob Dylan fan, but for some reason or other, this this last few days, all these Dylan songs keep popping up. We played Ring Those Bells last week, Ring Them Bells uh, last week, uh, and this one has like been in my head all day long. Uh, but yeah, there's a wall between you and what you want. You have to leap it. Um, all right, so... Um, here we go. Uh, we've got uh, calls uh, coming in here. And let's see. Let's uh, start with, oh, I have to do thank yous. I haven't done thank yous. So Kat Pastor's there in the studio. She's making all this stuff happen. I believe Jonathan McPants is making his comeback to our Hartford studios today. A limited run comeback anyway. But he came up uh, from where he lives uh, to handle all the calls there today. He is the producer of this episode. And I should also tell you that our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, is taking a few very well-deserved days off this week. It may, for that reason, I'm a little shorthanded on producers. You may hear a couple of reruns over the course of the week. Obviously, if anything really dire starts to happen, we'll either go live with this show or we'll be switching to NPR coverage uh, if anything really big goes on. But And we will be live uh, I think probably Wednesday and Friday, last time I checked. Anyway, uh, so yes, Jonathan McPants is in the studio today for the first time in eight months. That's how long he's been out of the studio and that is how long I've been out of the studio. But I'm not back today. All right, so here's Steve in Berlin. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Hi there. Uh, big fan. Love your show and contributions to the wheelhouse. Uh, oh, thanks. I'm a thirty. Uh, I'm a thirty-three year old Republican that lives in Connecticut who voted for Biden, and I'm just curious uh, to see what uh, where you think the Republican platform might be going forward. Um, in my eyes, there was a minimum threshold of like essentially who should be allowed to be president in the United States, and and I see it as Donald Trump's trips on that first step. Um, you know, it's one that's built on character, empathy, and common decency. So I'm happy to see that maybe we're finding our magnetic north. Um, my concern is, though, is that going forward, the party, it's, it's going to be hard for the Republican Party to argue against the fact that he did just get the second most votes in history ever. Um, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I had something really brilliant to say about that. First of all, I think it's a great question. Um, you know, how the Republican Party decides to rebrand itself is, I think, um, a looming mystery. And, and obviously, one of the things that we've been saying since 2008, uh, to use Bill Curry's formulation, it's one thing to be on the wrong side of history. It's another thing to be on the wrong side of demographics. Uh, and it would seem to be that the Republican Party is in that latter position, even though, obviously, famously, at this point, Trump made gains with some of the demographic groups, which the Republicans had theoretically lost. Uh, he was running hard uh, um, to uh, particularly to, to win the votes of black men. Uh, he did, of course, surprisingly well. I think he got about a third of the Hispanic vote. I, I, I don't know if we 100 percent know that right now. It's going to be you know heavily weighted towards Cubans in South Florida. Uh, he actually made gains, I believe, among LGBTQ voters, at least over his 2016 mark. I'm not sure what that's all about. So, you know, in a way, you look until we really crunch the numbers of this fully and really get a chance to pour over exit polls, it's kind of hard to figure out how 
much of a polarizing figure Donald Trump is and to what degree, as a matter of survival, the Republican Party would need to repudiate, not repudiate him, but but just sail in a very different direction? And if so, who is going to get them there? Who is going to emerge? Which people are going to emerge as the people who say, well, no, that's not exactly who we are. This is who we are. Um, and you know, I don't have, I think it would be wrong for me to even try to come up with a facile answer to that question at this point. It's just way too early. It, it is a sorting out that has to go on. And of course, the other possibility is, I mean, a lot of people think that you'll see like Don Jr. or somebody as the nominee uh, four years from now. I don't know, you know <laughs> how that might work out. Um, he'd have to sort of change certain aspects of his uh, personal life. And um, But um We'll see. We'll see. I, I think it's it's a great question. It's too early to have a good answer. So um, I'm being told that our final call today, uh, a lot of pressure on Stephen. Uh, Stephen uh, in Weathersfield has to land the plane. So yeah, you just got a few minutes left here. So really make it stirring. Really make it great. Great. You really got about 90 seconds, baby. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah. That's great. So I'm a social worker. I live in Weathersfield. I work in Hartford. And I want to respond to your call that I heard on my radio when I jumped in my car, which was for how and if we should engage with people who supported and voted for Trump. My feeling is that the opportunity for all of us uh, is to engage with people where we live. I live in a small town. I'm surrounded by people that voted for Republicans. I can see the lawn signs. So I think that we really need to reach out to people that are easy for us to find and talk to them. And I think that this response should be engendered by a need that's broader than just responding to the current situation. I think that we need to do this all the time if we want to live in a healthier environment and get out of identity politics. Oh, Stephen, this is say- so great. This is so great. I mean, you're you're terrific, and you are saying something really important and profound. I just wish I'd gotten you on the air a little earlier because I really, really do have to end the show here. But that that's a great way to end. And yes, uh, you should be appointed uh, national social worker by the Biden transition team because uh, you you've you've got it right here. All right. Thanks to everybody else who listened, and uh, we will be back over the course of this week to visit with you. <laughs> 